Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission, The Tales of Sage and Savant, a Twin Star production. Brought to you on the first of each month from the Twin Star Studios in sunny Southern California, it is our great pleasure to bring you Episode 8 of Sage and Savant. Our tale stars Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. Episode 8, Vikinger, is sponsored by Postgate Fine Jewelers and features the music of Dogwood. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. When last we saw our intrepid pair, they had just returned from a month in earthquake-ravaged Renaissance Naples. Perhaps more plangent are the echoes of babyhood for the professor and of lost love for the doctor. Needless to say, emotions are off-kilter and some awkwardness has ensued. I refuse to let this account devolve into a penny dreadful, but I would be remiss if I did not let you know that the realities of temporal displacement can wreak havoc on relationships. I'm sure I don't know what you mean. Oh, you know quite well what I speak of. The passions of a spoiled Florentine poisoned your own ability to reason. But we are home now, and before I agree to travel with you again, I must see the return of my own Petra's good sense and practicality. This mooning calf romance twaddle is no place in the life of a scientist. It is not romance that prompts me to wish a return to Napoli. It is science. Time travel will never be viable for science until we can control trajectory. And so let us return to New York, Boston. That should prove your theories quite nicely. I need a place where there are multiple dead to inhabit. Well, you can go to Arastat, then. There are plenty of dead there. Why are you so dead set against a return to Italy? It is not like you to be so intemperate. It is not like me. It is not like me. I spent a month helpless watching you lose yourself to a silk merchant. You forgot me. Forgot your research. You forgot yourself. I did not forget you. I had you at my breast ten times a day. And that is a bridge too far. The professor is still sensitive about his time as an infant. He has recurrent fantasies of seeking the comfort of the nipple, and yet his relationship with the doctor does not allow for such intimacies. His concerns about these sorts of ethical and philosophical dilemmas have led to him beginning his own record of their travels and the emotional fallout thereof. January 8, 1894, King's College. Private account of Professor Erasmus Savant. Key exigencies germane to the question of temporal displacement remain centered on two areas. The bodily requirements of both the corporeal forms left behind and those that serve as the receptacles, and the cerebral effects of inhabiting a life that is not your own. Dr. Sage has nicely managed the care and maintenance of our own bodies via mechanical means, and the bodily care of the host forms must be decided upon the spot. But so far her medical knowledge has been effective in the management of such problems as we have encountered. It is in the mental adaptation and assimilation that the doctor's mechanical knowledge has proven inadequate. I fear, if we do not create some process whereby we can be recalled wholly to ourselves, that temporal displacement will simply become a pathway to madness. 
My own degrees in archaeology and history are not much help in this regard, but I believe my studies in sociology may provide some mechanism or pathway which we can follow to allow us continued travels without creating psychopathy. As the professor gathers his thoughts and prepares to tackle the existential angst of their latest travels, the doctor must deal with problems of a more tangible nature. Good morning, Dr. Sage. I trust you had a lovely holiday? Good morning, Mix and Twistle. Call me Abigail, please. All right, Abigail. My Christmas was... interesting. Did you go away somewhere? Yes, I was in Italy. Oh, how lovely. I was unfortunately stuck here. Papers to write, books to read, research to do, that sort of thing. Ah, yes. Well, I hope that went well for you, too. Oh, it was fine, really. I have never been much of one for an overly drawn-out holiday season. One day is enough to be subjugated to the rigors of my family. Thank you. I spent the month with family and found it quite refreshing. Oh, I did not know you had family in Italy. I don't. Well, at least not anymore. I, I once did... <laughs> did you stay on campus through your entire holiday then? All but the only days themselves. I went to my grandmother's for two days, but climbed gratefully back into my bed after. Did you know you had left a light on here in the laboratory when you left? Did I? No worries. I turned it off when I discovered it before leaving for Granny Aunt Whistles. Geoffrey had the same idea, but I was here before him. Would Geoffrey have entered my lab? Oh, he was quite prepared to do so, but I sent him packing. Uh, thank you, Abigail. I did not think... Yes, well, don't think me yet. I am, after all, any employee of Max Cunningham and must report any and everything I learn here about your activities. You plan to report that I left a lamp burning? Oh, no, the lamp itself is not the problem. It is rather this cryptic note I found on the table next to the lamp which has me concerned. Tell me, is there something I should be worried about here? Oh, uh, this? Uh, no, there's nothing to concern you, Mix Cunningham. What is the relation between music and your investigations? Music? Oh, no, that is not music. It's a cladney pitch. A cladney pitch? Yes. I'm using a cladney table to help pinpoint the exact electrical resonance for maximum response of galvanistic consuetude. Cladney patterns help me determine post facto the true amperages needed to achieve the desired results. And so the doctor blathers her way past the girl's suspicions, demonstrating the Cladney device and explaining away the reference to time as the first evidence of anatomical studies to successfully map the ulnar nerves of the arm. In these historical inquiries, the work of Professor Savant cannot be underestimated. His obsession for ephemera has led my research down some startling paths. The thoughts of our scientific ancestors were often clouded with religiosity and superstition. But as in the case of Leonardo da Vinci, they can also provide great insight and inspiration for our times. How else do you think the ornithopter could be built today? Lucky for the doctor, the girl seems to buy her explanations, and all goes as normal for a couple of weeks as the laboratory settles into routine, and the doctor and professor begin to once again find their equilibrium. Hello, pet. How goes the arm waving? Hello, Erasmus. Well, I think... Abigail is settling into routine nicely. I do think we are about ready to try another journey. Are you any closer to finding a way for us to come home without violent death? 
I think hypothermia might be our answer. What I need to do is provide a reliable circuit interruption to the electrical portion of the brain. Violent death provides that in immediacy, but slow death is mostly slow due to the body. When a body has expired, the brain will certainly follow quickly behind. Uh Brains can die at a rate different than our bodies. Oh yes, your tissue could have received a death blow, and your brain might keep working for another five minutes or so. This is rarely the case, as shock contributes to hasten the brain's demise. Well, that's a relief. The point being, hypothermia is a gradual decline for both the body and the brain. No violence, but a final interruption of the electrical impulse, all the same. And the ethical question of suicide. If one is not doing violence to the body, and if one is merely a presence animating a body that has already crossed the boundary between life and death, can one actually be said to be committing suicide if simply endeavoring to create the circumstances favorable for returning to <laughs> one's own body? I know I am in trouble when you start using royal vernacular. So now you think we can commit suicide and still end up home in our own bodies? I now think we can return, even if our ending is not sudden and violent. All we need is to interrupt the circuit. It should not matter if there is no violence. I'm still undecided on the ethical nature of suicide in these circumstances. In the end run, as the doctor and her friend began interacting more normally once again, and as the presence of Mixent Whistle in the laboratory came to seem normal, and as the month wound down, thoughts turned to traveling once again. So it is on a bank holiday weekend when Abigail is known to be leaving town. Our intrepid explorers set out once more for the unknown. Laboratory. Dr. Petronella Sage, King's College, January 22nd, 1894. Targeting time destination is proving more successful with the recalibration of the Cladney pitch. As such, we will once again attempt to push backwards into history. The pitch of A above middle C led us 450 years into the past. As such, I have set the pitch to a full octave, C above middle C, which I believe shall take us 900 years to 1,000 years back in time. In addition, on this journey, we will attempt to find a termination for ourselves through the expediency of hypothermia. There is some chance that death by suicide will not complete the mechanism which operates to affect our travels. And yet, temporal displacement can never take its place in the annals of historical and medical research if we cannot devise a method of disengagement that remains in the scientist's control. I should like to note for the record that though the professor has expressed great reservations at my methods and the frequency of these travels, he remains a true partner in this research and should be honored accordingly. And so, setting aside their individual fears and embracing once again the fickle finger of fate, our heroes leap into the void. Now, dear friends, we take a short musical break. This month, our musical guest is none other than Dogwood. Relax and enjoy this feast for your ears. Shock and amaze the whole world with their accuracy. It's 
And now, back to our story. Do you remember last month, dear listeners, when I assured you that the disorientation upon awakening had lessened for our explorers? <gasps> I spoke too soon, but do not be concerned. The doctor did not return them to Renaissance Italy. It seems Sage and Savant have not yet shaken the psychological effects of staying a month in host bodies. This transfer of consciousness has brought forth residual memories. No, our adventurers find themselves in a time and place that the good professor's history has not prepared him for. They are in 11th century North America, in bodies of vanquished Vikings, the victims of warfare with local natives. Yes, yes, I know. In 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Let me assure you, that little piece of doggerel verse is nothing more than Italian propaganda. Columbus did not discover America. Look it up. Where are we? It appears to be a wild place. Well, that is a bit of an understatement. They have awoken in the primal forests of Vinland. They are part of the household of Thorhall, the Viking pioneers told of in the saga of Eric the Red. This group of intrepid souls left Greenland in three longboats, open to the bitter sea, and made the long trek to the new lands at the edge of the Atlantic. What they found was a bountiful land with many bountiful animals to hunt for hides, and bountiful natives who did not much care for the incomers. Having lost many of their numbers in skirmishes with the Skraylinger, or natives, the party has moved down the coast and away from the danger. With no time to build ceremonial boats in which to burn them, the dead have been placed on plinths and left for the creatures of the forest to consume. Many such creatures now lurk in the underbrush, made cautious by the sudden awakening of their erstwhile dinner. Well, I am so you relieved not a baby you are not time. a man again. After a brief period of self-examination, the two rise from their beers and take stock of their situation. How lovely. More head trauma. Oh, but we know how to deal with this, my dear. Here, let me bandage you and you can do the same for me. When their wounds are bound, the doctor asks... Any idea where or when we are? I believe we're Vikings. Your collar pieces, the kirtle you're wearing, and the braids in our hair, the winningus we have tied about our lower legs. Winning what? The winningus, the strips of cloth tied around our legs to keep us warm and dry. They were sported by the Vikings and the Anglo-Saxons alike, but this forest is too primeval to be English. Therefore, I surmise we are somewhere in Norse country. Fascinating. Any idea what year? Well, that is more difficult. Clothing did not change much across the centuries for the Viking people. From the 7th century to the 12th, their style did not really change. What they wore was practical and warm. Even their jewelry motifs changed little. Although techniques in casting and finishing did develop, the motifs used remained the same. The Vikings were a people that knew what they liked and stuck with it. Well, quite. What then should we do? I assume we must have people somewhere. I assume so as well. It appears by the footprints in the mud that they headed south. I suppose that's as good a direction as any. They began to move off, following the trail of footprints. It is a good thing that they cannot see what I can, because in addition to the animal predators lurking in the underbrush around the clearing, there are many native warriors, their clubs still red with the blood of the dead. All threat to sage and savant is muted, however, as the natives react with great superstition at seeing the corpses they have created rise and walk. That is a rude thing. 
The natives in this part of the world believe that certain sorcerous individuals, when they die, can reanimate with their excess octon, or life force. Such beings exist by killing and consuming human flesh and can only be killed by fire. Luckily, Sage and Savant remain ignorant of their peril. After many hours trudging through the forest, they have left the lands of their native pursuers, who decide pragmatically that the Skadigamute are now a problem for their southerly neighbors. The immensity of the forest is beginning to enact a claustrophobia on our heroes when they smell the welcome smoke of a campfire. Hello, the fire! Is there room for two more? Who is there? Thorbrand? Is that you? Oh, I'm sorry. I've uh, We've been hit in the head. By Odinson. It is you, Thorbrand. We had left you for dead. Uh, yes, you did. But as you can see, we are not dead. We are, however, the victims of terrible headaches and could really use some broth or food of some type. Yes, yes. Come to the fire. What good fortune that you live. Come, eat... And so, Sage and Savant join a band of Viking settlers making their way in a new land. Over the course of the evening by the fire, our heroes learn that they are not in the Norse country as they assumed, but in the New World, and that the party was attacked by Skrælinger, and an attempt at creating a permanent colony had failed. Dave will write a saga about your exploit this day. You will have to forgive me. I think I was hit upon the head in such a manner as to knock loose my memory. I know he is Thorbrand, but who am I? Why, I have never known you to forget so much as a half ounce of hack silver, let alone your own name. <laughs> Be that as it may, I should quite appreciate your help in reminding me. Why, you afraidest? The assayer and the killer of the Skrælinger? I'm the assayer? You are the one to keep track of each of our shares in the bounty of trade and harvest we find. Thanks to your careful records and our good fortune, all who have come on the Thorhall expedition shall be rich. The Viking pulled a small, flat piece of wood from a pack. It was nearly covered in Futhark, or runic text. Dr. Sage looked and was surprised to discover that she could read it. Thorvaldson, ten beaver pelts. Snorri, two deer hides. Arnoldson, twenty-two weight of turkey feathers. It is an account. This is remarkable. Not only do the Viking settlers predate the accepted discovery of the New World by many hundreds of years, but Viking culture seems to have been far more balanced between the sexes than that of our southern neighbors and greater Europe. They have you, a woman, serving as their banker and treasure keeper. Are you saying a woman should not perform these offices? Oh, not at all. I'm only observing that it's rare that it one does. I also notice in observing our firemates that... You women seem to serve as warriors as well. I believe our academics seriously underestimated the egalitarian nature of the Norse society. Fascinating. Shall we have an account of Freydis' bravery this day? Freydis came out and saw how they were retreating. She called out, Why run you away from such worthless creatures, stout men that ye are, when, as seems to me likely, you might slaughter them like so many cattle? Let me but have a weapon. I think I could fight better than any of you. They gave no heed to what she said. Freydis endeavored to accompany them. Still, she soon lagged behind because she was not well. 
She went after them into the wood, and the Squalinger directed their pursuit after her. She came upon a man she thought was dead, Thorbrand, Snorri's son, with a flat stone fixed in his head. His sword lay beside him, so she took it up and prepared to defend herself therewith. Then came the Skraelinger upon her. She let down her sark and struck her breast with the naked sword. At this they were frightened, rushed off to their boats, and fled away. This group of Vikings is a hunting party sent south by land to gather as many hides and as much meat as possible before reuniting with the remaining party in the longboats at the bay a day's walk further down the coast. day's walk? Petra, this is beginning to look like another lengthy sojourn. I know, but the cold water of the sea will be a reliable way to induce hypothermia. We can follow the group that far at least. And so, when they have learned what they can from their traveling mates, when they have filled their bellies, and when the fire has died to coals, Sage and Savant follow the lead of their adventure mates and roll into furs under the trees. They position themselves closely together, reaching out to touch fingers for reassurance until they fall into a fitful sleep under the canopy of primitive stars. The morning dawns with a cherry red sunrise that lights the tops of the trees afire and finds the professor in high spirits. He sets about eliciting as much information as possible from his traveling mates. Last night, Snorri told Freydis and myself of our positions in the band here, but I wondered about you. What role do you fill in the company? Have you really had your memory knocked out of your head, Thorbrand? Or are you just making fumbling attempts to court me? You know I am promised to Carl Sefni. Oh, no, 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 and also sincerity. It seems every bit of information I am reminded of brings me back more of my memories. It's all the things I wish to know. Thank you. And so the time passes quickly as they walk towards the sea. By midday they have joined a much larger group of Vikings camped on a great cliff overlooking a sparkling blue ocean. There must be almost 300 people here. Look at those boats. Such elegant lines, such fierce mastheads, such bright paint. How terribly exciting it is to see all this in person. You will see it all in person and up close soon. Snorri tells me that you and I will be taking a boat back to Greenland. We leave in a couple of hours. Back to the life on the high seas, is it? Only until it is dark. Then we can slip off the side of the boat and into the water as people sleep. Hypothermia should take us home in a few hours. After much debate, it had been decided by the Vikings that one longboat would put to sea immediately to return to Greenland, heavily loaded with furs and other bounty from these shores. The expedition leaders wanted to officially register the riches they had secured so far for their families at home. The other two boats would continue down the coast, gathering as many hides and riches as could be found before casting off and abandoning the effort to establish a colony in the New World. There is an old sailor's superstition, dear listeners, that you may be familiar with. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in morning, sailor take warning. I do not know if Vikings follow this advice in the main part, but chose to ignore it in this instance, or if they do not yet know of the ominous warning so provided. In the event, the boat containing a fortune in New World riches and, of course, our intrepid adventurers is overtaken by a violent storm as night falls. The little boat navigates the towering waves well, but every plunge douses the inhabitants with icy fingers of water. 
Caught up in the struggle to survive, our heroes forget their pledge to dive into the waves and freeze to death. We must leave our heroes there, at the mercy of Njordr, the god of sea and wind. And now, for a word from our sponsor. Jewelry worn by the Viking peoples was designed to boldly show off craftsmanship and wealth. Intricate pieces containing intertwining beasts, dramatic knotwork, and elaborate symbology were worn as signs of wealth and status. Each piece individual, each piece a unique testament to the standing and personality of its wearer. In today's world, finding jewelry with that Viking individuality is only possible if you leave the shopping emporiums and seek out a true artisan. Artisans such as George and Susan Postgate of Postgate Fine Jewelers. They have a constant assortment of stunning pieces available on their Etsy store, but where they truly shine is in their custom work. Postgate Fine Jewelers will amaze and delight with their innovative modern take on the ancient idea of jewelry as personal symbolism. Look them up at PostgateJewelers.com. Postgate Jewelers make jewelry a Viking would be proud to wear. Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. For unique jewelry that makes a personal statement, you cannot go wrong with a custom piece from Postgate Fine Jewelers. And now, back to our show. When last we saw Sage and Savant, they were fighting for life alongside their Viking brothers and sisters in a longboat at the mercy of an angry god. They had planned to interrupt the signals of electricity from their brains in order to bring about death by flinging themselves into the sea. However, as the storm came up and the quest for survival began in earnest, our adventurers could not help but add their efforts to save the beleaguered boat. In the end run, nature does the deed for them, capsizing the boat and drowning all inhabitants as their great store of riches sinks to the bottom of the sea. Sage and Savant opened their eyes to the familiar hum of laboratory equipment and the gleam of electric light on copper tubing. <laughs> Was that the non-violent death you had hoped for? Not exactly. Oh, I presume these bodies expired from drowning <coughs> rather than hypothermia. And no hint of suicide as it was the storm that flung us into the water. <coughs> so another hypothesis <coughs> remains untested. I'm afraid it, it does. Well, I'm sorry for your research, dear friend. Oh, but I am thrilled for my own. How delightful it will be to tell Professor Wilson that he is wrong, wrong, wrong about the place of women in Viking society. Oh, I knew from reading the sagas there was more to the story. But Wilson continually put down my ideas as petty romance. Ha <laughs> ha! I'll tell him. Erasmus, you cannot just tell him. There is no corroboration of your evidence. But, oh, damn, you're right. I must revisit the fossil record, or perhaps the sagas that, oh. The, Dr. Sage. Oh, no, it's Abigail. I'm sorry to wake you. Dr. Sage. You've left the light on again. You stay here, Erasmus. I'll get rid of her. One moment, Abigail. I'll be right there. Petra, you cannot go out there. Nonsense. I must reassure the girl. I cannot have her carrying tales to Cunningham. Petra, wait! But either she did not hear the professor, 
or she ignored him, and the doctor opened the door and slid out into the main laboratory, fully adorned in her Faraday armor and CRAP helmet. Oh, Dr. Sage, what are you wearing? Oh, <laughs> Abigail, what are you doing here? I shall answer your questions, but first you must answer mine. What are you wearing? This... This is a Faraday armor suit and a CRAP helmet. I'm using them to record my sleep so that I can monitor the difference in electrical output from waking to sleeping states. Simply for monitoring purposes, then? Well, yes, the data informs my experiments, but it's not truly a part of the galvanization experiments. Now, what have you woken me for? You left the light on again. I did not think you would be present in your lab on a Sunday night. I'm sorry, Abigail. I must obviously get better at two things. Firstly, remembering to turn off the lamp. And secondly, at communicating the full nature and scope of my experimental inquiries. I'm unused to having an assistant of any kind. Can I see it then? See what? Your sleep setup. See how you're monitoring your electricity patterns. No, no, no. I, I, I mean... Not tonight. I have some personal items within that I would rather not share at this juncture. I can show you on the morrow, if you wish. The young woman casts a skeptical glance at the door and then acquiesces to the doctor's request. All right, yes. That will be fine. Shall I turn off your light? Yes, Abigail, thank you. That was close. I tried to stop you from stepping out like that. What did the girl say about your uh, Faraday armor? Oh, nothing. I told her I was monitoring my own sleep. She thinks that this is a bedroom. Oh, she thinks this is a bedroom and she's going to want to inspect it in the morning. Well, then, we'd better set it to rights then, hadn't we? I cannot make this laboratory look like it is a bedroom in just one night. Oh, you underestimate me, dear Petra. As good as his word, the professor disappears to his own apartment and reappears pushing a handcart that is full to overflowing with cloth and lamps, pillows and knickknacks. Before the dawn arrives, the laboratory has been transformed into a rather over-decorated cloth-draped bower. This is nothing of my taste. Beggars cannot be choosers, my dear. It should be good enough to convince Mix Abigail that you actually sleep in here. Thank you, dear friend. I did not mean to insinuate that your help was not appreciated. Once again, I must say I do not know how I should get along without you. You shan't, and you shouldn't, never get along without me, my dear Petra. Will their subterfuge work to distract the curious mix and whistle? Do travelers who die via non-violent means return to their bodies? How much further back in time will the doctor push their explorations? Tune in again next month where we will learn the answers to these questions. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a Twin Star production brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Chip Michael as Savant, Eddie Louise as Sage, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Episode 8, Vikinger, was written by Eddie Louise. Are you interested in the historical information we included in this episode? Go to our website for the complete bibliography. Theme music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. Special music in this episode was Loom Years from the album Persephone is Dead, Long Live Persephone by Dogwood. Check her out at dogwood.bandcamp.com. Our episode sponsor was Postgate Fine Jewelers, Gold and Silversmiths Extraordinaire. 
catch our website at sageandsavant.com and like us on Facebook to stay current with all things Sage and Savant. And remember, death is no barrier to science.